The following audio is from First Baptist Church of Conyers. More information about First Baptist Conyers is available at firstconyers.com. Hey, Pastor. So um, it was really interesting to watch the kids run out. That's usually what happens when I get up to preach. A lot of people do that. So I'm glad it was just the kids and they were supposed to. Um, it was also interesting that that song we sang, to, to wrap it up, with the, uh, and by the way, I'm glad you announced that Zach's having, you were pointing over at me when you said having a baby, and I was like, oh. <laughs> we already have five, we do, and we have five because we didn't want six. But uh, hey, you guys are sharper than the men last night, when I, or yesterday when I said that. The, the song that you guys sang about incense, and the incense, let the incense rise up, um, I'm going to start this morning, you can actually go to the second slide, Ronnie. Um, a few years ago, for our 40th anniversary, because nothing says I love you like walking 20 miles a day with a backpack and sleeping in a hostel with 40 strangers, for our 40th anniversary, we walked the Camino de Santiago. The Camino de Santiago is, uh, you start in Spain, or I'm, I'm sorry, in France, you go up the Pyrenees Mountains, 14 miles, and it's, there, there were no breaks, it's 14 miles up, and then three miles down, and you're in Spain, and you make a right-hand turn and walk all the way to the ocean, Finisterre, the end of the earth. And we did this on my wife's uh, impulse. She, she had seen this. Actually, we watched the movie called The Way. She saw it. She's watching it. She goes, I want to do that. And I'm going, you do realize it involves a lot of walking. And, but she, she wanted to do this, so we started training, and we, we did the Camino. <clears throat> well, I'm going to share a little bit about uh, something that happened on the Camino, but at the very end of it, you, you end up at um, uh, Santiago, the Cathedral of Santiago, and, which is the Cathedral of St. James. Supposedly, it's his body that's buried in the, the crypt at the bottom of it. But uh, part of the service, a ceiling that's probably about twice as high as this, and they've got a, it's called the Boto Fumero. It's the incense. If you've ever been to a Catholic service and they, you know, they pray with the incense coming in, it's the incense holder, but it's, it's probably about five feet tall, about that big around. I mean, it's a big, giant, silver um, incense burner. And they, they lowered on this rope, and then the seven priests start, uh, monks start swinging it, and it swings from one side of that cathedral to the other uh, with the incense falling the whole time. Now, the reason it's called Boto Fumero, any of you who speak Spanish know that means the, the fumigator. Uh, the, the early pilgrims, this pilgrimage is over a thousand years old, the early pilgrims would come in with fleas and bed bugs and lice and everything. So this was not just incense, it was fumigation. Uh, and, and I, but I promise you today I took a shower so I don't need the, that incense, but what a, what a song to talk about the incense, our prayers, our worship going up to God. And I, I, was, I was touched by the whole worship, but that, that song just, wow, that was, that was great. I also greatly appreciated how you took the pause in, in Christ alone. I've never heard a worship team do that, but we need to pause and think about the sacrifice and then the hallelujah of, of the, the resurrection. As a matter of fact, I was at... I was back at Liberty University. I also went there, uh, uh, was back for a, a baseball reunion, and we went to a, a chapel service, and they sang that song, 12,000 students, and they stood and applauded, you know, just shouted on that verse of the, of the resurrection. That's been my goal ever since as a pastor. I want to see people shout about that, that Jesus rose from the dead. Well, the other part of the, of the Camino, there were two similarities with every 
person that we met. We met people from over 45 countries walking this Camino. Uh, we walked alone, uh, my wife and I, but we, you'd, you'd catch up to people and you'd talk to them, why are you on the Camino? And they'd talk to you back and, and we'd, you'd sit in services together in the evening or you'd have meals together. And we found out two things. Every one of them was on a journey, a, a spiritual journey. They understood this was not just a hike. This is a, a journey. It's literally a quest. And they, they had that in mind, but the second similarity is they didn't really know what they were looking for. Out of all the people that we met, out of the you know, hundreds of people that we connected with, they didn't know why they were on this journey. They knew that there was something spir spiritual. They, they, they would, uh, some people would actually do the air quotes. I know that I'm on a spiritual journey, but they didn't know why. We found out that uh, in Spain and France, less than 6%, anywhere from 3 to 6% of the populations of those countries and basically all of Europe, less than 6% attend church. Now that ought to sink in and we ought to go, whoa. But what we really ought to go, whoa, about is that when you come back home and you find out less than 18% of our country, and this is pre-COVID, less than 18% of the United States professes to go to church. And of those... My role is, um, and actually my role is national field staff chaplain now. It changed a couple of years ago. But um, my role with men is to understand that less than, less than 5% of those who profess to go to church are men. It's good to see men in the congregation today. But it's also a challenge for us to realize we don't just sit in a congregation, men. That's not our job, to just sit in the congregation. We are called for something far deeper. But here we saw and here we see less than 18, less than 10% going to church. Why? That doesn't just happen. That's not an overnight thing, an overnight decision to just say, well, I'm not going to go to church anymore. Something happens in a, in a man's life, especially. Something happens that you know, most of these are not unchurched. They were previously churched. They used to go to church. Something happened. What was that? Any number of reasons that they leave. They leave they leave the God that they don't know. You know, the number one reason in our, in our research with Man in the Mirror, the number one reason a man leaves church is this. I prayed and God didn't answer the way I wanted him to. And, and so they give up on God, give up on faith. They especially give up on organized religion. Again, that doesn't happen overnight. That's usually the lure of Satan. The lure of Satan is this you know, bright and shiny that's out there that says, this will promise you and probably give you, or in their mind, this will give you what you were looking for there you didn't get. And so, uh, again, the lure of Satan grabs people. If we go to the next slide, by the way, that, that yellow arrow is how you knew you were on the right journey. Uh, that, that was your pointing to the right place. So uh, hopefully you see a yellow arrow in the message today and it points you to the right place. The big idea of today is this. And look at this very carefully. Satan does not tempt us just to make us do wrong things. He tempts us to make us lose what God has put into us through redemption, namely the possibility of being of value to God. Now we're going to explain that in just a moment. We'll stay on that slide. I want you to pay attention to that. I, I understand my setting, so I, I cautiously uh, tell this story. But we started a church in Quincy, Illinois, uh, over 40 years ago. And um, 
when we started the church, we bought, we were blessed by God to buy an old elementary school building. It was all one floor, and it had a gymnasium, it had the cafeteria, it had everything we needed, and we were able to buy that through, through the grace of God. But when we bought it, it needed to be converted into a, into a church. So we did all this remodeling. We spent several months remodeling the place, and I get a phone call from a a trucking uh, magnet down the road, a guy who owned a trucking company, and he said, hey, could you use some carpet in that new building of yours? And I said, boy, boy we sure could. And he goes, I had a big, huge roll, turned out to be a huge roll of carpet damaged by a tow motor. It's junk to me, but he said, you can come get it. I'll actually deliver it if you want it. So I went down to his trucking company, and sure enough, there's this big, giant roll of carpet. And he said, I'll, I'll bring it. We'll roll it out in your gym, cut it up into the sizes you need for the classroom. So it was good. And I, you know, I'm thanking him. And then he said, well, do you need anything else? I said, well, I'm a poor pastor. What else you got? And, and he goes over to this roll shutter, uh, you know, 18-wheeler trailer. He goes over to the sh shutter, and he goes, this thing's full of stuff. <laughs> About midway through, he realized he was talking to a preacher here, so he better change his language a little bit. It was full of stuff. The point of that story is we're full of stuff. And there's a difference between being full and being whole, complete. We as a, as a, nature, a nation, as a culture, as a people, we are full of stuff. But we need to understand the difference between full and whole. And that's what this, uh, the making us lose what God has put into us, that's the first thing about us, is that we lose because we've gained too much. And Satan will just continue to throw these things at us that will never fulfill, never satisfy, because they keep us from being whole. So what is that value? That God, uh, he wants to make us lose what God has put into us, namely being of value to God. Some of you probably took the Westminster Catechism growing up. You went through a catechism class. Anybody in here go through catechism class? Or are you just born and raised Baptist? Wow. Born and raised Baptist. I, I, did anybody? Well, do you know the chief? Okay, then you're, you're the guy. <laughs> now, question number one, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God. You got it. All right. No rulers for you. You got it. <laughs> to glorify God. Now, I won't ask, but I'll ask all of us, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? We sing the songs, glorify we, we use the word. We, we, we want to talk about, oh, I just want to bring glory to God. What does it mean to bring glory to God? Well, the word literally, we sang the song, praise God from whom all blessings flow. The doc, it had the title of it up there, the doxology. Glorify comes from the Greek word doxa. To, to reveal is literally how it's translated. To reveal God. To tell about. To, to proclaim. To share. To, to, again, reveal. Literally, it means to throw light on. To throw light on God. Well, God has an awful lot of light. God is light. But our job, the chief end of man, is to reveal God. That's what Satan wants to keep us from doing. He wants to not have us not reveal God, but instead be wrapped up in all the other trivialities. Turn in your Bibles, if you would. If you brought a Bible, and uh, turn to John chapter 5. I did not put this on the screen, so uh, you're going to be dependent on your app or your, your bi real Bible or whatever it might be. But we're going to look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. John chapter 5, verse 1. 
Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And by the sometime later, he's talking about after he healed the official son, after the disciples had come back after their first missionary journey. So now he's, he's kind of already ruffled feathers of the, of the area. He's already shown them, I'm not your typical uh, prophet. I'm not your typical rabbi. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Now I want you to picture this. Uh, it's it's a, a big, I've, I've not been there, but I understand it's a big giant pool. It's been unearthed by archaeology not too long ago, and it has these five, uh, all, if, if you've got a pergola outside of your house, it's got these five uh, pergolas that are surrounding this pool. So that sounds kind of idyllic, doesn't it? That sounds kind of like, wow, that'd be a nice place to, to visit and hang out in this uh, almost beach-like or pool-like atmosphere. But go on. Here, a great number, and we're not told great, what, what number that is, but when the Bible uses a great number, it's not talking just a handful of people. This was a, a large group of, and look at who they are, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. A great number of disabled people, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. Now, it just went from being an idyllic place to, if you've seen some of the homeless encampments in the various big cities, probably even in Atlanta, a big homeless encampment, that's probably what this was like. It was a lot of people, a great number of disabled people, not able to take care of themselves. So it probably had a certain odor to it. It had a mess to it. It was not idyllic. It was not a place that you would picture, this is where I want to go and spend some time. But this is where Jesus went, because he had a purpose. Here was one that had been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years. This guy had laid there. For 38, and I, I've often said I, I can't imagine that because I'm only 39 years old myself. <laughs> I, I said that once I was preaching to a large group of, uh, uh, of African-American pastors, and I made that statement, you know, I'm only 39 myself, and a guy in the very back said, that's been a hard 39 years. <laughs> yeah, it kind of has been. But here, this guy had laid there in this basically isolated position. You got, you got a picture. Even though he's in a large crowd, it's a selfish crowd. It's a crowd that has one goal in mind, and it's not to make friends around you. It's to get to that pool. Because the, the, the legend was, if you get to that pool when it's stirred, you're going to be healed. So all these blind, lame, and paralyzed people are, are totally selfish of their desire to be fixed. Kind of like, I don't know, kind of like a large gathering of people today maybe even sitting in churches all across America today. We, we, we don't really look at those around us. We're here for, you know, sometimes just for us. And here was this guy that was disabled, and he'd been, uh, you know, I, I reread this this last week, some commentaries, and found out he probably hadn't been at this place for 38 years. He'd been an invalid for 38 years. But for whatever reason, he kept coming back to this place, and he was here now because hope, hope, hope. Why are you here today? Why are you here in this, in this church, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of an economic you know, bruising at least, in the midst of all this going on in our world? Why, why are you here? Probably, some, maybe some because this is just where you go. 
Maybe some because you you come to be with all the other blind, lame, and disabled people. But maybe there's just that seed of hope. Hope for change. Hope for real life. Hope for abundant life. Jesus comes up to him. This, this, This one man. Out of all the probably hundreds, Jesus comes up to him and says, do you want to be whole? What a, what a question. But you know what? I don't think Jesus just came up to him and said, hey, hey, buddy, you want, you want to be whole? I, I had a, a man in my, my last pastorate that had, he had a Johnny Erickson Tata experience. He dove into a river and snapped his neck and was paralyzed from the, from the neck down. And he sat in a wheelchair in church every Sunday that we had a wheelchair area. And he sat there and he taught me something. I would always come up to him and say, hey, Ray, how you doing today? And, and one day he said, Ron, I'm going to ask you a favor. I said, okay. And he goes, would you sit down next to me when you talk to me? I was like, whoa. Here for all these probably years, I'd been just talking to Ray like this. So I learned to, to get down and to talk to Ray. And to, to actually, you know, hey, how, how are things going? How, you know, any, anything I need to be praying for? I think Jesus probably came up to this man and said, hey, hey, do you want to be whole? I think he got on his level because I know 40-some years ago he got on my level. He met me where I was. He didn't expect me to come up to where he was. He met me right where I was. And he saved me from, the, from the, these, these three very things. You see, I was blind. We're, we're blind. We are a people that are blind. Blind to real needs, therefore blind to real problems, and therefore blind to real answers. We, we just find whatever answer works, whatever it takes, whatever is going to work. And we are blind to what really needs to happen. In Second Peter, Peter wrote, therefore add to your faith. Now you're probably here with faith today. You probably have, as you walked in the door, I, I would imagine that uh, over 95% of you sitting in these pews today came in here with faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, faith that we just sang about, faith and hope and and a reality of believing that Jesus saves and that he saved you. But Peter made it very clear, add to your faith virtue, to your virtue knowledge. When I preach that text, I bring out a big 12-foot ladder and I literally climb up step by step. And the reason for that is because the rest of the text says, for if these things are in you, faith, virtue, knowledge, godliness, love, if these are in you and abound, in other words, they're growing, they make you that you're neither idle nor unfruitful in your, in your walk, in your work, in your faith. But it goes on to say, but he that lacks these things doesn't add to his faith, doesn't grow, doesn't change. He that, that lacks these things is blind cannot see afar off, and actually forgets that he was purged from his sins. So if we're not growing, if we're not adding, if we're not being discipled, we're blind. Now what is that blindness? Uh, the blindness is, and I, I, when I put, bring that ladder, I put on the other side of that, of that ladder, of that wall, that's the fruitfulness. That's the life that is lived for the glory revealing of God. But he that lacks these things uh, you know, he, he doesn't even know why he's saved. I'm just saved. Well, you're not just saved. You're saved for a purpose. But we're blind to that. And then lame. I mean, we don't use that word anymore. It's not, not only not politically correct. It's just not a word we use. We don't walk around. Talk, but there is one place where we use the word lame. Where is it? Anybody want to venture a guess? 
somebody does something and we go, well, that was lame. Somebody says something, that, that was lame. We use it as lame excuses. I doubt that they were using that, but let's use it for our venture today. Lame excuses. I'm sorry, especially men. It's not my fault. I mean, this started in the Garden of Eden. It's not my fault. It's that woman you gave me. I hope none of you went home from the conference yesterday and said that. But uh, it's, you know, it's not my fault. We, we offer up the lame excuses that it's, again, while I was busy here and there, or I only am left. I mean, all through the Scripture, you see men using lame excuses, and we still do. I don't want to change because, or I can't change because, and we offer up our lame excuses. And the third thing is they're paralyzed. And all do we get paralyzed. We're paralyzed by, by fear of change. Man, if I do this, what's going to happen? We're paralyzed by, by fear of commitment. What if God makes me... And so we're afraid of that. We're just paralyzed by fear. You know, every, inside every man is a junior high boy walking into the cafeteria not knowing where to sit. We're, we're afraid. We, we have this fear. I don't want to look stupid. I say that in every seminar I teach, that that's the number one fear of men. I don't want to look stupid. So we hold back. We stay laying by the pool and, and we're, just, we're just there. That's why, folks, that's why Jesus gave that challenge to him. Do you want to be whole? Because in all reality, 38 years becomes a, a lifestyle. 38 years becomes this is just who I am. I, I am the lame, blind, paralyzed man. And Jesus gave him not just a challenge, but an invitation. Do you want to be whole? Now here's our Here's our, our challenge, our disability. If we can go to the next slide. <clears throat> we fill up with stuff. Our disability is the lesser gods, the substitutes, positions, possessions, power, prestige. We are afflicted as a nation by the, the sickness of affluenza. We are affluent. We have so much, and it leaves very little room. When we are full of stuff, there's no room for whole. My son was a missionary in South Africa for the last 10 years. They just moved here this past summer. But um, we got to go visit him a couple of times. They worked in the townships in, uh, uh, that were caused by apartheid. And we got to work in there and, and work. But we took a break from the, from the work we were doing. And we went down to uh, the Cape of Good Hope. They lived about 20 minutes from the very end of Africa, the Cape of Good Hope. And as we're driving, all along the highway are armed guards. It looks like they've got Uzis, but they're not Uzis. They're paint guns. And they're not to shoot people. They're to shoot baboons. The baboons come down from the mountain, and rather than hitting deer or pigs like we do here, they hit baboons, and it's a, it's a big problem. So these guards, about every 200 yards or 300 yards, shoot the baboons with these paint guns that are that it's pepper spray. And it hits them, you know, they don't like the pepper spray, they run back up into the mountains. But that's a temporary fix. So Jai says, you know how they actually get rid of them? I said, you know, how? And he pulls off to the side of the road, and there's a big termite uh, anthill, big, big, stood about that tall, and it's got holes all through it, and a hole in the top. It, it's petrified, but it's through rain and other things. And he said, they take a piece of candy, or two pieces of candy, and they put it down one of those holes. And then when the baboon comes down, they reach into that hole to grab the candy. And as soon as they reach in and they grab the candy, they can't pull their hand back out. And so then they come along with a net and a tranquilizer gun and they shoot it. All that baboon has to do is let loose of the candy and it could be free. 
but it'll hang on to the candy until it's captured and taken to the other side of the country. What a stupid creature. <laughs> and you know where I'm going. Yeah, we do the exact same thing. I'm going to hang on to this, and here comes Satan to rob us of what I could be, the value to God. I can't glorify God because I'm caught, I'm trapped by this affluenza. That, that's number one, we're full of stuff. Number two, we focus on the externals. We're just like this man who looked at the stirring of the pool or looked at the problem or looked at the lack of help instead of looking to this man who's knelt down by him. Do you want to be whole? Instead of looking at the, the internal, Paul put it this way, that we need to know how high, how long, how wide, how deep is the love of Christ so that we will be filled to the full with the measure of Christ. So that. I'm doing a study right now. It, it's, it started out just as an accidental, and it's become a fascinating study to look at all of the so that's in Scripture. This happened so that this would happen. Uh, Jesus' prayer in John 17, I pray this so that they will. And, and there's, a, there's an end result. Well, here there was an end result as well so that we would be filled to the measure of, of Jesus Christ. That's why we do spiritual disciplines. They're not so that we can win favor with God or make God look at us better. They're so that we focus on what are the most important parts of this walk. Let's go to the next slide. This kind of, we, we talked about this yesterday. I don't know how much of this you're going to be able to see, but what we start out, well, you can't see the two boxes in the middle. I need to change those. But it's significance and security. Men look for significance. So we stick our hand in the hole because that's going to give me significance. The things off of the top, the people, the power, the prestige, the possessions. But we, we grab onto that. Women are looking for security. And that's, that's in a rough nutshell, but that's what we, we're driven by. Significance, security. And so we, we develop an if I just had this, then I'd be significant or secure. For this man laying here for 38 years, if the waters would just stir, then I would be healed. And so he would focus totally on the external, and he was no longer looking at, you know, what, what's my role in this? So we develop this if-then, and then we develop a goal-oriented lifestyle, dropping down to the lower right hand, and then we reach the goal, and we have temporary partial satisfaction. But what we didn't cover yesterday, men, was what blocks our goals. Those two circles in the middle, the things that block our goal are people. What happens if a, if a people, if a person blocks my goal? We don't like that guy anymore. We blame him. We, we will target him sometimes. Our, our anger will be at him. Uh, he, he was the reason, she was the reason that I'm not happy or fulfilled or uh, that, that I didn't reach my goal. But the other blockage to our goal, not just people, is circumstances. Might I ask you, who controls circumstances in your life? God does. God is in charge of circumstances. So just like I get mad at people, I get mad at God. I didn't tell the story yesterday of, there was a time in my life where uh, I'd been serving the Lord, in my mind, serving the Lord for 25 years. And God woke me up through a circumstance, through, you know, again, a deal where I found out, no, I was serving me for 25 years. I liked getting the attaboys. I liked getting the, wow, good job. Whether it was in sports or whether, you know, whatever, in preaching, I, I needed to hear that. And then when that shut down, 
I shook my puny fist in the face of God. How dare you? And I had to go through this learning experience that um, it, it wasn't God, it had been me. And when I, when I was broken, when uh, he, he took all those broken pieces and put them back together, and, uh, and what stands before you now is, is a, a broken piece of pottery that God still chooses to use. But he had to break me first and break me to the, to the uttermost. I blamed God, but it was because I didn't really know God. I want to repeat that. I blamed God because I didn't really, after 25 years of serving as a pastor, I didn't really know God. And as a result, I forgot certain things about God. They're, they're up there. Um, with, no, go back to that last slide, please, Ronnie. The, the, the things that are down at the bottom. Disappointment. When, when we get our goal blocked, the first thing that happens is disappointment. And I shared this yesterday. To, to have disappointment is to forget Romans 8, 28, and 29, that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, and his purpose is, verse 29, that you might be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, whatever happens in our life, God is using to shape us, to mold us, to make us more like him. And sometimes that whittling, sometimes that carving, sometimes that shaping hurts. I almost could change that to always that shaping and molding and making hurts. So when we're going through the disappointment, I didn't get what I wanted, we need to remember in the midst of the disappointment, God's getting what he wants, that we would be of value to God. The second thing up there is discouragement. And discouragement is to forget that God, again, has a plan in this. He has not failed me. I hit Psalm 77 in my, my daily reading quite some time ago that for the first time. I mean, I'd read through it a hundred times, but uh, I, I hit this understanding of what the psalmist was saying because I was going through this. L listen to this, Psalm 77. I cried out to God for help. I cried out to God, hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. And I have written in the margin of my Bible, why only then? <laughs> when I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night I stretched out untiring hands. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered you, O God, and I groaned. I mused, and my spirit grew faint. You kept my eyes from closing. I was too troubled to speak. I thought about the former days, the years of long ago. I remembered my songs in the night. My heart mused, and my spirit inquired. And then the psalmist asked six questions that I almost guarantee Every single one of us have asked these six questions at some point when we are musing in the middle of the night, when we are thinking and contemplating and crying out, we ask these questions. Listen, will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And then there's a Selah, and I thank God for that Selah. That's where you're supposed to stop and think about this. And I, I, I sat and looked at those six questions, and I'm, I'm sitting there back at that 25-year anniversary of my, of my pastoring, and I'm looking at these going, yeah, God, have you? And then the psalmist says this, Then I thought, to this I will appeal, 
the years of the right hand of the Most High. In other words, I'm now going to go and look at when I actually saw him as God. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. I will remember, you, you hear this? There's a choice involved. There's a decision that has been made here. There's, a, there's a, a, a covenant that is being fulfilled here. I will meditate on all your works. I will consider all your mighty deeds. What God is so great as our God, you are the God, not you will be, you are the God who performs miracles. So here's this man in the midst of this anxiety attack, in the midst of this, you know, why? Where are you, God? And he makes the conscious choice to go back and look at his journal, all the times that God has been God in his life. And, and so now, instead of the moaning and complaining and, and, and wallowing in the, the filth of the 38 years of, of, of blind, lame, paralyzed, he gets up and makes a choice. I'm going to remember who you are. I, I made that choice that, that time. It changed everything. Went to a different job until God called me back into ministry and gave me uh, uh, the broken pottery opportunity. What happens if we don't do that? Despair. You know, despair is to forget my wife's favorite verse of Scripture, and it came to pass. <laughs> this too shall pass. This isn't going to stick around forever. I'm not going to lay there forever. I'm not going to be forgotten forever. So don't let disappointment and discouragement fester into uh, despair, but regain a secure stand. Doubt. Does God see? Does God know? Does God care? Yes. Yes, he does. But at that point, what we need, and men, I'm especially going to encourage you, because what we do at that point, when we've hit disappointment, discouragement, despair, doubt, what we do as men is withdraw. We isolate. I guarantee you, pastor and the rest of you uh, men's leaders, if you would take a look at the men in your church who aren't here today, who aren't attending, you would probably find that there was some blind, lame, and, and paralyzed aspect of their life, and they've withdrawn. Because that's what we do as men. We go into our man cave. We isolate. What we need is the spiritual armor of, of Ephesians chapter 6 that talks about uh, to take up the shield of faith. That shield was not a, it wasn't an arm shield. It wasn't a hand-to-hand -hand combat sword shield. It was a, a, a wall shield. It was actually you know, almost a sheet of plywood covered with leather so that the fiery darts that would come in would, would burn out on that fiery leather. But they, would, they had couplings on them. You guys, uh, in the other room, you have chairs that couple together. They, they have these little hooks on them and they couple. They would have that same thing on the shield. So lock the shields together and then get down behind that shield. And, and that became the protection. But here was the key to it. Locked together, together, Shield to shield, the enemy couldn't get through. When we isolate, we've got that one little shield up, up against the, the minions of Satan. But when we link together, and that's so critical that we do, I know too many men, too many men who've lived in this condition for more than 38 years because they isolate, they despair, they doubt, and they go into the defeat. And defeat is to forget greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So, those were the two problems. Let's go to the next slide. We have one question. Do you want to be whole? Can you imagine, and I hope you, I hope you can go beyond imagining to actually hearing 
Jesus in your face today. Not, not this guy. Jesus in your face saying, do you want to be whole? Not full, whole. Well, the first question comes up, okay, what's whole? What does that even mean? What does it mean to be whole? And actually, it could be translated complete, uh, filled, not full, filled, ongoing, present active participle, filled to the fullness. But here's four things that we're going to say. Number one, connected. Every man needs other men. Now, we don't think we do, and we don't want to admit that we do, but we need other men. I got a good friend sitting here today. He uh, played second base when I was coaching at Liberty, and a uh, great, great guy, great friend. And he, he works with uh, athletes, but um, he, he understands the importance of these guys being connected with each other. That, you know, you, when, when you're lifting weights, which it's quite obvious I don't lift weights, but uh, when you're lifting weights, you better have that guy spotting you. You do it on your own, you're, you're courting with disaster. When you're doing uh, you know, any kind of exercise, you do it yourself, how long does it last? I mean, the reason my wife and I walked 2,000 miles to get ready for our 200-mile uh, you know, uh, hike was because we walked together every day. Not only did that bond us as you know, greater, greater friends, uh, it, it prepared us. We didn't give up. I, I knew when I get up this morning, Jane is going to get up and we're going to walk together. We need to be connected. Look at this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who could say a few, th few things about being isolated. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved in it, the more disastrous is his isolation. When women have a problem, they talk. My, my wife calls her sister whenever there's an issue, whatever it might be. She calls her sister. My brother-in-law lives the same equal distance uh, as my sister-in-law does, but we talk if there's somebody, if Michigan lost or won. <laughs> that, that's it. We isolate. That's, that isolation is drawn out probably the mo one of the most sobering stories is in 1 Kings 13 where Saul the king was told to wait on Samuel. And so uh, instead of waiting on Samuel, he isolated and then he, then he acted. But it says in the text, I saw and I thought and I felt compelled. See, when we're alone, we, we see the, the problem, but we don't see it clearly. We need somebody else to say, do you, do you see that part of it? And he, and he says, I, I thought, and we let our thoughts just get scrambled and messed up, and so I felt. And his emotions took over, and he acted. And so, uh, Samuel finally came along, and he said, Saul, you have acted foolishly. That's what we do when we isolate. We need friends. Guys, I'm going to ask you, and uh, I'll ask the women too, but uh, probably your answer is yes. Whereas with men, can you name three men? that you're absolute friends with. And when I say absolute friends, you could call them at two in the morning and they'd pick up and not be mad. You could call them and say, Would you, I'm going through something, would you pray with me? Do you have those three friends? Do you have friends who call you out and who will nail you when you try to snow them? Do you have that kind of friend? Because if you don't, you're gonna be like Saul. You're gonna think a lot, you feel a lot. See, here's our problem. <clears throat> this is our line of shame. We'll talk about everything up here. We'll discuss that. 
We'll discuss all the different things we're facing. You know, man, it's been kind of a rough week. I'm really tired. My kids kept me awake all night. And we'll talk about that. But this is what we've got to get to. These are the things that we, we, we don't want to talk about. But that's where fellowship, that's where relationship, that's where uh, the genuine uh, small group is going to bring that line down, down, down to where I, I'll talk about these things. Because I know I can't handle them by myself. I know that I need, I need other people. My son-in-law is on the SWAT team uh, for Chicago police. And they had a call uh, almost two years ago now. There had been a, a shoot, mass shooting. Uh, one guy had killed uh, the HR team in his factory because they were, they were canning him. And so he went to his truck, came back with his gun, killed five. And then he stood at the door and picked off each cop as he responded to the 911 call and was shooting the cops as they showed up. So then Nate and his team come in. Now, the cops are trained, and they're armed, and they're equipped, but they're isolated. They're one-on-one. -on -one. They drive their own car. Now comes the SWAT team, 12 guys who are super trained, super equipped, and, and you know, their, their guns are not handguns. And they came in, and they took the guy out. It's a sad story, but it really does show the extreme difference between the individual cop. Fortunately, none of those cops were killed, uh, but three of them are no longer on the force because of their injuries. But those, the SWAT team, uh, in spite of the fact that they were in a firefight for over 15 minutes, can you imagine? This guy had three duffel bags full of ammunition. 15 minutes of a firefight, not one of them was even nicked in their armor. Not one of them shot. Why? Super equipped, super trained, and there for each other. If you're the lone cop, men, you're probably going to fall and fail. So get on a SWAT team and be ready. The second thing we need to have is we need to be transformed. Now, you might say, why didn't you put that first? Most likely, we're not going to be transformed until we're connected, until we're with other men, until we've gone through the, the lone cop experience, the, the difficulty, until we realize, I need somebody, and so we cry out and experience transformation. Philippians chapter 3 says, I consider all these accolades, all that he'd reached, all that he'd done, that's rubbish compared to, contrasted to my walk, my relationship, my knowledge of Jesus Christ. And until we come to that understanding that he is my master, Every man, transformed, every man has a master. You've got one. Who's yours? Is it positions? Is it possessions? Is it the world, the flesh, the devil? Or is it truly Jesus Christ? Here's our problem. We are a culture that looks for a quick fix. Take care of my problems right now. We become, as men, self-made men. And I'll quote uh, the wise philosopher, Dr. Phil, how's that working for you? you know, the self-made man doesn't get there. Last year alone, Americans spent $2 billion in therapy. How's that working for us? It doesn't. We say at Man in the Mirror, it's a business principle, your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. Think about that. Your system is perfectly designed to get the results you're getting. So you don't like your results, guess what? Change your master, change your system. Behavior modification is the American way. 
I'll, I'll start reading self-help books. I'll start cha- I'm going to change. But behavior modification doesn't last. Heart transformation must take place. Thirdly, every man has a mission. We need to be challenged. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us you are Christ's ambassadors. We don't live in this world. We're not of this world, but we represent another world to this world. We are Christ's ambassadors. Our problem, our problem as a church, as Christians today, we have settled for a lesser mission. I just want to retire and live comfortably. That is not what I want. I, I do not, well, number one, if I'm going to retire, it's going to have to be, I know the day I'm going to die and I can retire at noon on that day. I've got enough saved up to make it till supper, but that's it. But, but uh, we, that's what we want to do. Make a living, retire. I'm going to use this word, exist. I, I quoted yesterday a Mercy Me song that says, I'm tired of living, I want life. I'm tired of just living. I want life and that more abundantly. So we need to hear and heed the call for the kingdom. We as men need to be the William Wallace of our day. Give me freedom. Give me real life. Give me Jesus. And retired men, retired men, you are especially needed. Your grandchildren need you. Men, younger men in this church need you. We need to make sure that we are the generation that is telling and teaching and living and mentoring a next generation who right now is not seeing the reality of God. That leads us to the fourth one, the fourth challenge. Every man needs to be discipled. To be whole means I'm discipled. Colossians 1, 28 and 29 are my life verses that I would present every man mature in Christ. Discipleship is learning to become who Jesus would be if he were you. Isn't that a statement? Discipleship is learning to become who Jesus would be if he were me. In other words, I want to be like him. Today, in today's church, and I look around you guys' church, and I want to say, you know, a boy, keep at it. But in the typical church today, less than 4%, 1 in 25 of millennials are in church. Less than 1 in 25. So that means, men, grandparents, it's up to us to change and to challenge. I want to wrap up with this. When Jesus said to this man, do you want to be whole? And when he looks at each one of us and and says, "I I want you to be transformed. I want you to be connected. I want you to be on mission, on on duty. And and I want you to, again, recognize that, that this is your calling. What we, what's our natural, uh, what's your thought right now? What are you thinking? I can't do that. I've got this, 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 you know. And we, we, we become quick to be blind to the possibilities, lame excuses, and paralyzed to actually do something. But I want to tell you a story. When I was playing baseball at Liberty, Chip probably hadn't heard this story, but I, I went, I set a record at Liberty that'll never be broken because they'll never let anybody play this long. Uh, I went 0 for 18 on, a, on one weekend series. I was batting second, so I got up a lot, and the, the first guy pitching found out I couldn't hit an outside slider, and that's all I saw for that whole series. I went 0 for not just 0 for 18, I struck out 18 times. I couldn't throw myself at a pitch and get hit by it. It was just, it was just if I stood there and watched for it, I called third strike. If I'd swing at it, swinging third strike. It was horrible. 
I was usually a pretty good hitter, but not that weekend. So on the bus trip back, which seemed like an eternity to take that bus trip back, coach calls me up to the front of the bus, Coach Worthington. Calls me up to the front of the bus. I figured he's going to tell me, you know, Ron, you're dropping your shoulder or, you know, you're, you're, you're looking sideways. I figured he's going to coach me. I sat down next to him and he says, Ron, what do, you, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to play pro ball. He says, you're not that good. <laughs> Whoa. Is that coach? <laughs> he was not the best encourager. But, boy, he saw a truth and he'd speak it. He said, you're not that good, but here's what you are good at. These guys follow you. You're a leader. He said, I want you to stop playing baseball, and I want you to be my assistant coach. What? Stop playing baseball? This had been my life. Stop playing. And then to just twist the knife a little bit more, he goes, and I want you to be my assistant coach on the condition that you go to seminary, and I'll make that part of your salary. All I heard was cemetery. I'm dead. <laughs> He says, I want you to pray about it over the weekend. I said, I don't need to pray. I'm not going to say, I, you know, that was my thought. I'm, I want to keep playing baseball. Well, then he threw the real zinger in. He goes, if you say no to this, you're going to be benched. Worst thing in the world to happen to a baseball player would be benched to think about it. So I went home. We got the bus parked, and we lived right around the corner from the church, and I walked home, and, and uh, as I walked in the door, ready to pour out my you know, anger and grief and everything else to my wife, I hear her cry out, Ronnie, Ronnie. And I went around the corner. She's laying on our bed, and she's hemorrhaging. She's pregnant, and she's losing the baby. And so I, I literally, I, I picked her up. She couldn't, she couldn't even move. I picked her up, and I took her out to the car and drove her to the hospital. And I sat in the hospital waiting room, not knowing, as, uh, she'd lost a lot of blood. Is my wife going to live? Kind of already knew the baby wasn't going to. And I'm, I'm sitting there weeping. The doctor comes out and he said, uh, she's, you know, we're having to give her blood transfusions. He, you know, he, he really painted a bleak picture. But he said, Ron, I want you to go home. You know, and, and she's going to be in the recovery for quite some time. Go home. So I did, because I'm still perplexed over the whole baseball thing, and now this, and I go home, and we lived in an apartment complex that I paid my rent by doing painting and wallpapering. So I drive up to my parking place, and here's my supervisor, comes out of his house, and he says, hey, Ron, I don't know how to break this to you, but we're not going to open up the, the bottom 40, so we need your apartment, and we don't need you. Uh, and I, I remember going, what? And he says, uh, you're going to have to find another place to live. We need your apartment because we're not going to open those up. So I, I've now lost <laughs> my career, my dream, my baby, maybe my wife, my house, my job. What more can go wrong? Well, actually a couple more things, but I won't get into those. So I go to school the next day. You know, Janie's still in the hospital. And I, go to, I go to class. And remember, it was Dr. Deemer. And Dr. Deemer, you know, he, he was drawing this thing up on the board about the rest of Christ. And, and he turned around and he said, you know, the Christian life is not difficult. And I must have said it out loud because he responded. I must have said, what? Because he said, the Christian life is not difficult. Now remember, I've lost my career, my dream, my, my baby, my, maybe my wife. She's looking good at this point. My, my job here. My house, Christian life isn't difficult. And as I was about to get out of my chair and show him how difficult his Christian life was about to become, and I realized I'd, I'd been a Christian at this point for about six months. So I didn't know 
any of this. And as I'm about to stand up, he says, the Christian life is not difficult, it is impossible. You can't live it. Jesus in you lives the Christian life through you. That's how you live the Christian life. So when you say, and he, he said it that day, and I'll say it, and we say it, when you say, I can't forgive that guy, do you know what he did to me? Jesus says, I already have forgiven him. Let me forgive him through you. I can't go and do that missions trip. Do you know how much that's going to cost and, and what I'm going to? I, I can do that through you. Let me have you and I'll work through you. You see, the Christian life is not difficult. It is impossible. But Jesus in you transforms, connects, gives you a mission, and fills you to do it. It's all a matter of do you want to be whole? Do you want to be whole? See, it's our choice. It's our choice. I'm going to ask us to close our eyes and we're going to go into a, not only a season of, of just praying, but of answering that question ourselves. Do you want? 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 Probably not. Want? Let me rephrase it. Do you need to be whole? Yeah. We are full of stuff. We need to pull our hand out of that termite hill, release the whatever it is, whatever it is that you're hanging on to, clinging to, that is keeping you from being whole. Release it today. I don't know what that is in your life. It might be possessions. It might be positions. It might even be a person that you need to just release it might just simply be a mindset that says, I want what I want now. Whatever it is, if you're understanding that it's, it's not fulfilling anymore, it's paralyzing, it's keeping you blind, would you release that today? I don't know as a church if you do altar calls, but I'm going to invite you to come up here and just, you know, there's these wide steps and just lay whatever that is on the altar. Name it Isaac, name it Isaac, and put it on the altar. If God wants you to have it back, you get it back like Isaac did. If God says, thanks, I was waiting for that. And he plunges the knife into it and takes it. Believe me, he will replace it and fill it with something so much better. Are you transformed? Is Jesus your master? Not just not just Savior. Jesus is in a cafeteria where you pick Savior and leave a little bit off of the Lordship. He's wanting to be Lord of everything. Would you let him be today? Would you say, Lord, I, I give you me, my all, and I give it now wholeheartedly because I do want to be whole. Father, I thank you for your gift of grace Jesus, your act of service and of salvation, of sacrifice, not only to die in our place, but to give to us through your resurrection life and that more abundant. Forgive us, Lord, for settling, for living. And I pray that today we would, whatever age, whatever occupation, whatever position in life, we would make that choice. Lord, fill me to the full with the measure of Jesus Christ. Help me to release and sacrifice whatever it is that's keeping me from being whole, whatever stuff is in my life filling me up. 
Help me to instead be full of the full measure of Christ Jesus. I surrender all. In your name we pray it, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from First Baptist Church of Conyers, located in Conyers, Georgia. For more information about First Baptist Conyers, please visit us online at firstconyers.com.